Welcome to Grace on the Go. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. This episode is a sermon from Sunday, July 9th, 2023, called A Map to Find Me, Joyfully Generous, given by Pastor Jonathan Dinger. The scripture passage highlighted for today's sermon comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 44 through 47. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as they had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Well, God's grace and mercy and peace are yours in Jesus Christ, our Savior. There's an outline. If you want to take any notes, of course, it'll be up here. And this is the culminating piece. This is number five in our series of sermons on this. I began several months ago where I tried to fit all 10 points in one sermon, and it wasn't enough time. So we're just kind of breaking this out, and so we can explain it and share it a little more, because and following Pentecost at the birthday of the church, and then 3,000 come into faith, 3,000 people come into the church, how do they live as the church? This is a picture, a snapshot, of how those first believers chose to live out their faith. And let me just, and we call it a map, kind of how do you find God's people? This is a pretty neat way to do that. When you see these characteristics amongst God's people, you could be pretty sure you're finding the body of Christ because we'll see the the, the heart of Christ being reflected throughout all those things. So just to recap it really quickly, it begins with Peter. When they say to Peter, what do we do? He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So first, it was a repentant, forgiven, baptized, uh, faithful people. That's, that was the foundation. And then it said they devoted themselves to certain things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they were devoted to the promises of God, the Word of God, as it had been revealed in Jesus Christ. And then the next one Pastor Simmons preached on, and it was on fellowship to being together, and at the table, right, where Jesus offered them forgiveness and his presence. So they were uh, devoted to that, committed to that. And then also they were devoted to prayer, anticipating what God would do rather than requesting of God, anticipating what God would do um, actively. And then finally, it, and it comes to this one, is and they held things in common and they gave to everyone as they had need. They, had, they were joyfully generous is the idea. And that's kind of the culminating piece. Now, here's the cool thing. What was the result? They were in awe, and God did amazing things, but the greatest line is the last line. And daily, God added to their number those who were being saved. I waited later in the sermon to say this, because I might lose my voice, so I can't fail to say this. Please know, I, I hope you can all assent to this and know this to be, I should not, not even having to say it. That last line is why the church exists. So that people might be saved. You can't get saved three or four times. But for those of us who know the salvation, the saving grace and mercy of God, that has to be our passion. And so all these things that they did led to Daily, people were coming to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Daily, God increased their family so that people might spend eternity in heaven. That's why we exist. That's the reason. And so what I want to do is unpack this this fifth piece. 
This piece about being joyfully generous. You know, if I, um, <clears throat> if I asked you the question, like if I said to you, because this, this is one of five pieces. So I always, it's, I'm always hesitant when I talk about this topic because you know what's one of the great criticisms of the church? This is from 20 years ago. The number one, well, the number one criticism of Christians and the institutional church, this is from about 20 years ago, George, George Barna did this study, was it was irrelevant. Number one, it was irrelevant. The second thing is that the church was full of hypocrites. That was the other criticism. And my, I, my response to that is always this, great, there's always room for one more, come on. <laughs> and then the third criticism was the church is just after my money, Right? And I always chuckle at that one because I go, you think that's all we're after? Do you think that's what God is after? Are you kidding? God wants our heart, right? I love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, all my mind, right? So God is long because he wants to give so much more than that. If we're coming to him just so that I can pay the mortgage, you're asking for way too little. God is wanting to give us so much, so much more than that. So I'm hesitant to do that because last few uh, new member classes that came in, <clears throat> and I visit with people one-on-one, -on -one, and it came up about four times where people said, so we've attended other churches. You guys don't talk about money very much. And I said, well, it's not like us to just say, hey, we better do four series. You know, we're behind in the budget. We better do four-part series on give us your dough. Um, it's not how we do it here. As the readings come up, and if Jesus speaks to it, or the church speaks to it, if it's in the text, then we speak to it. Why is it important? Why is it there? This is a topic Jesus cares about, right? Because where your treasure is, what's, where's that? Where your heart is, too, right? And so don't worry about how you're clothed. Don't worry about that. Or the widow with the might, you know, she gave everything she had because she trusted God, right? So look at the lilies of the field, and on and on, right? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't make a big show. I mean, it's a whole bunch of things. And Paul's letter to the Corinthians is a great reflection of this Acts passage, right? God wants a cheerful giver. Don't, don't give out of obligation. Oh, here comes the plate. Oh, great. You know, or oh, the pastor's going to talk about it again. That, that's not our point at all. How do we live? How do we live this out, right? How do we live this out? And so we're using an example from the early church um, as to how they did it. And how did they get there, and why is it significant? You know, if, if we did a poll, <clears throat> boy, I don't know if my voice is going to make it. You have to take over. Tag. Tag. <laughs> um, if you took a poll of everyone here, and I just did an anonymous one, said, what's your favorite part of worship? Let's say there's 160 people here in the room. Let's say. How many would say the offering? What do you think the chances are? Just the paid staff. <laughs> no, I mean, it isn't. We would say, I love the singing. Uh, I love time of prayer. I love coming to communion. I love it when there's a baptism. You know, I, I love um, every once in a while I like the sermon, you know, that kind of thing. But to say the offering, and it's interesting because in this Christian community, they genuinely are joyfully generous. It's a reflection of what they've received in Christ. So let's look at it. Let's look at it here together. You know, I remember there was this quote made about George uh, W. Bush, 
when he was running for president, because he came from a fairly well-off family. Um, you know, it's, um, his father was president, you know, and so forth, so he was in a privileged family. And I forget who it was that was running against him, and I'll probably get this quote wrong, and you can all email me and correct me. But somebody said about George Bush, he was so privileged and part of an elite class, that the comment was made, he was born on third base, this is a baseball analogy, born on third base and thought he hit a triple. Do you get that analogy? No? How about silver spoon? Does that one make sense? If somebody was born with a silver spoon in their mouth? And so that he was part of an elite class and had no idea of how privileged he was. I find it ironic <clears throat> in the British royal family, you know, the books and the stories with, um, which prince is it, Harry? I think it's Harry, who is uh, complaining about his horrible life um, and his millions and millions of dollars and mansions and things like that. There's a lack of self-awareness somewhere there, somewhere. So you have that class. We call them, used to call them trust fund babies. They had a trust fund and thought they had earned it all. On the other hand, you have another whole group of people that say, nobody ever gave me nothing. I worked for it all. I did it all. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Nobody handed me nothing. Right? Neither of those are godly. Are you, do you get me? Why? The common thread is they fail to recognize who the owner and giver of all things is. And that's the truth. When we live as if we are the owner, we live impoverished because there's always a worry that we may not have enough. When we live as if God is the owner, we live in abundance. I've, one of my favorite quotes, when Martin Luther got married to Katie in the Reformation time, <clears throat> they gave him like a, a dormitory to live in. He owned, owned nothing. He'd been a monk, you know, and she'd been a nun. And uh, so they would take in boarders. And the, it was a place that they just kind of inherited and and, um, and so he would take in these impoverished students who had nothing. And Katie would notice <clears throat> candlesticks were missing or, or silverware or things like that. And she was worried that people were stealing from her. And she came to find out that her husband, Martin, was giving this stuff to these students. Because uh, they had nothing. I mean, they had nothing to live on. And uh, she would get mad. She'd get you know, mad as a hen and she'd come up to him. Martin, what are you doing? We need those things. You know, why are you giving that all away? And she... And, he looked at her just very puzzled, very innocently. Remember, the guy was a monk. And he says, well, Katie, uh, God is rich. He'll give us more. I mean, that was always his response. God will give us more. So when God is the owner of all things, and this is really the first point, how can they be joyfully generous? Because remember their circumstance. These people are not the elite of the culture. These people, this religion is not legal. They're under the gun, being criticized by the religious leaders of Judaism and ultimately under persecution from the empire itself. These, pe these are people who, by earthly standards, do have no social security. And I mean that in the broadest sense. There is no social security or Medicare. Are you okay? Okay. So, they, are, um, so, they're so they're, they don't have a safety net, and yet they're filled with joy in their generosity What's the indicator here? All the believers had everything in common. They weren't keeping score. Now, please don't ever misread this. All these things that are said, none of them are imperatives. 
It's not like I'm standing here commanding. You have to be devoted to prayer. You have to be devoted to the Lord. You have to, be, you have to give. It, there's no imperatives here. There's no commands. They're descriptors. They're descriptions of a community that's living out its faith. That's all this is. And so they're helpful. They're indicators. <clears throat> they're, um, they're ideas for us to understand. And for us to understand that we, every one of us are trust fund children. The parable of the talents that Chris read, that's the whole idea. And you know that one, right? The one gets five, and it's like a million dollars. The other guy gets two, it's like a quarter of a million dollars. And the other guy gets one, it's like 50 grand or whatever, 100, you know. It's real money. I mean, it's, it's a chunk of change. And they've been entrusted with that. They've been, the, the master's going away. He says, I'm going to trust you with this. And then they, he leaves. And one guy doubles it, the other guy doubles it, and the other guy's scared to death of the master. And the, the telling part of that story is when the master comes back and he hands him back the, the talent, the bucket of gold he had buried in his backyard in a coffee can, and he hands it back, and this is what's so telling. Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you don't sow, right? In other words, you're not doing the work. And so here I'm giving it back to you, safe and sound. And here's the thing. He was wrong. He didn't know the master, did he? In fact, he missed every indicator. The master had entrusted a million dollars to this guy and a quarter of a million to this guy and 50 grand to you. What do you mean you're a hard man? He just put it in your hands. And so you missed the heart of the master. The heart of the master is filled with abundance, filled with generosity. You can see it right there. You want to know how valuable you are? Thanks, Chris, for saying that. You want to know how valuable you are? This is not about thinking less of ourselves. I love that quote. It's thinking of ourselves less and him more. It's thinking of what he has done more. That's the whole point of the first one. We're trust fund babies. Americans don't like that. Yes, we are. We're all charity cases, every one of us. And if we don't get that, you can't get your salvation right. Because your salvation is all charity. Every bit of it. Every piece. And so that's the, where it starts. This group of people understood that they had been accepted, bought, purchased, won out of the overwhelming love of their Savior Jesus Christ who sacrificed nothing. I love where Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. No, no, in 2 Corinthians. How will he, if he didn't even spare his own son, how will he not also graciously give you all things? Don't you get it, people? Is what Paul is saying. Don't you get it? We're all trust fund babies because we know the source of our blessings. But here's the coolest part. It's not just that we have been blessed, but God entrusts it to us. You know those resources we have? God is saying, here you go. I'll, I'll sell you this way. It's just if you're parents and you have kids, and not your kids, you can come, you can burn me an effigy later. They're not your kids. They're on loan to you. They're his. He's entrusted them to us. And as a church, the mission, the gospel, that which saves for all eternity, I'll tell you what, if I was God, I wouldn't have done it this way. Entrusted to me? What are you, an idiot? He entrusted to us to share that good news, that treasure with the whole world. Okay, second thing. So we are unbelievably overwhelmed by blessed, but it's acknowledging God as the owner. Second thing. I was thinking about um, um, Fourth of July and liberty, and uh, 
I love how declaration starts. We hold these truths to be self-evident. And I love that. That's very interesting when you think about that. Because I don't, clearly in our polarized society today, I don't think we, that's a hard statement for us to say. I don't think it's much of a we that we hold these truths to be self-evident. That we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. Does this sound familiar to you? Right? The community of Christ is always a we. It's always we. God has united us together in Christ around a common purpose and around a common grace. We hold these truths, and they're not just words. That's what's so cool about this community that we see here in Acts. It's a tangible exercise in unity. Tangible. It's one thing to come in and say, yeah, we get it, we buy it. It's another thing when the rubber hits the road for us to rally together and do it. By the way, I'm just going to say thank you to this group. We, we committed to this back-to-school thing. It kind of fell in our laps less than two months ago. And we have, if several of you have already talked to me today and during the week, can we give to it? If you give to it, it will be seed money for next year because we've raised, it took $30,000 and we raised it in less than a month. And so it was a we, a tangible expression of unity around a common purpose and need. So I want to compliment this community for that, for being able to do that. I'll take another example of it, a common expression of unity. It's insane that we have a high school on this campus. It makes no sense. You should just know that in a community our size with its demographic makeup, it makes no sense that the school of this size, of every level, exists on this campus in southeast Idaho. It's an absolute miracle. And, the only, and when we built that high school, which we built it for a third of what public funds would have done it for, this congregation and other donors gave two and a half million dollars to make that happen. Two and a half million dollars. I mean, it cost four and a half, but two and a half million dollars. It's crazy. That's a tangible expression of unity. Are you with me? You get what I'm saying? So when we rally together. When I was here less than six months, we had a, we had a, a financial, it was a thing. Something had gone desperately wrong. And we came to the congregation. I, st- I stood up before, I had been here six months. You didn't, I, I don't think any of you knew if you could trust me or anything. And I said, we're down a half a million dollars and the IRS wants to shut our doors. Can you help us out? Wham! And the congregation. Did you get what I'm saying? So those are opportunities, tangible expressions of unity. One of the great examples is from the Old Testament. Um, and Emma, thanks for reading so beautifully. Um, hard names, right? Yeah, Bezalel and Aholiab. So <clears throat> it's a great thing. So they're in the wilderness, and the Israelites have never had a place of worship. Never. And they're on the move. So God instructs them on how to make a, a mobile temple called the tabernacle. And God gives them instructions on how to build it and what, how beautiful it should be and what kind of materials they should use. So um, Moses invites, God invites through Moses, the skilled craftsmen to be able to build it, use their great skills. And then he makes an appeal to the whole body of Israelites and says, hey, everyone needs to participate. We don't care how much, everyone has to participate. And then secondly, but for those of you whom God has blessed with abundance, we're going to ask you to give more. 
And it's so awesome. Did you catch it? Are you familiar with this story? They respond so great, they have to say, stop giving. Now, when has that ever happened in the church? Well, I just gave you an example of the back-to-school thing. But I can tell you, you don't have to give for this year. You can give for future years, but not for now. But what a great thing. Their generosity was so great that they said, we got enough. We have all that we need in order to do it. But it was a tangible expression of their unity because words are cheap, right? Actions are an expression of our faith. And so it's an opportunity to do that. The third thing is this. Just an example. Oh, and Jared, thanks for picking Heart of Worship. Love that song. It's old now, isn't it, Matt Redman? It's a great song. Coming back to the heart of worship because it's not about me. And that's an interesting thing because in some faith traditions, worship often does seem to be about us. And I love what we do in our faith tradition. And so just a little bit of theological stuff on why we worship the way we do. Because to be honest, it doesn't matter what style, what style of music we use or whether we're wearing robes or not wearing robes. In our faith tradition, the idea is that God is already present, eagerly awaiting your presence. You don't show up to try to get God to show up. Do you know how dumb that sounds? As if God's not here? Does that, or if, or if by my passionate worship, I could somehow get God to do something for me? Instead, we come as humble, beggars, pleading. At God's invitation, God has honored you beyond measure by saying, hey, I'd like to invite you to a date at my house. I'd love you to come here to this place where I am present with my arms full of gifts, eager to pass them to you, eager to deliver them to you. And simply by faith, you take hold of them and they're all yours. There is never a lack of abundance in the arms and the presence of our Savior. So we come into this place eagerly anticipating that God is already here longing to act. God always acts first, correct? Amen? Yes? God always acts first. While we were still sinners, Christ died for our sins. God always acts, but our act of worship is to respond to that. To respond to God's generosity, his passion, his abundance with great joy and commitment. That's our opportunity. It's an act of worship in this early church. They gathered together. They continued to meet every day in the temple courts. This is an outgrowth. Their generosity, their commitment was an act of worship. And it was natural. Because they knew they had been the recipients of great gifts. And when you receive a great gift... A failure to be generous is kind of poor manners. I remember my mom forcing me to write thank you notes. Anybody remember those days? Do I have to? After Christmas to every aunt and uncle and oh boy. And my mom would say to me, you say, don't you think that they love you? Do you think they gave you that really neat gift? Because I had some uncles and aunts who gave me gifts way better than my parents gave. Don't you think they love you? And to say nothing? What are you saying to them? Uh, you know, okay, mom, fine. You write them out. Get a cramp in your hand. Last point. So I was, I've been a development guy for many years. My first job, my first uh, job in the church was at Seattle Lutheran High School. And development means you're a dude who goes around asking people for dough. 
And we had to raise a certain amount of money in order to pay all the salaries and do all that kind of thing. And it's interesting because often when we talk about this topic, it's, uh, it's one of those things that, are, that people don't love to hear or preachers don't like to preach on it, stuff like that. In fact, if preachers do really like to preach on it, that's not a good sign um, because it's a challenge. We're all tr- we all try to pay bills. We all want to live in response to Christ. We all want to do that. But so when I was a development guy, I would go around, and sometimes people um, didn't love to see me coming because they knew what I was going to do. And I remember with one guy, it was really a great, it was really great because I went in and, and he said, how's it doing? And I said, it's, it's, been a hard, it's been a hard month or so because I'm asking people to commit and to, to give, and, and that's, that's not fun. They're, they're not always real excited for me to do that. And he says to me, well, what are you asking them to give to? I said, well, I'm asking them to give to the kids at our Lutheran high school and the teachers. and We want to keep that ministry going. And he said, well, why would you ever apologize for that? He said, why would you ever feel bad for that? And it's funny, it really changed in me, in my mindset. Is that, and so for over the years, those of you that know me know that I'm quite shameless. When we have a need, I tell you. When, if we have an opportunity to do something that will share the gospel, I'm going to do that. Uh, and so, uh, in fact, Chris actually wrote this down as a note. He said, hey, that was a note I wrote down. I, I won't ever apologize for asking for you to consider giving to something that might mean that a person would spend eternity with their Savior. I, I'm not going to apologize for that. But at the same time, I've also got to be committed to actually doing that. That what we're doing is actually doing that, holding up Christ. We had a little video, and I'm not going to show it, Heather, because I'm going to run out of time. It's a cool little cute little video, but it's dad talking with his daughter, and I love it because what he says to her is, one of the reasons we give is to make God famous. And we don't use that phrase a lot in our faith tradition. I've heard it in others, but that we want to make God famous among us, that famous among one another, in our families, in our community, we want to hold him up high. So that when we have the opportunity to teach and to have school, when they have an opportunity to bless those in need, when we have the chance to grow in our faith, it makes God famous among us. And so what I love about this last thing is that they were thankful for the opportunity to give. Whether it was stop giving, they brought enough for the tabernacle. Or when Paul says, we each decide what we're giving because God longs for cheerful giving. And if giving isn't cheerful for you, I've said this before, don't give. Give when you're cheerful. Give when you're excited about what happens because God, will, God honors that gift and rejoices in that gift. And not everyone's at the same spot. And by the way, just so you know this, there's no tithing police here. You know that, right? There's no attendance police. There's nobody keeping score. There's no one doing that. Um, and so we don't compare, we don't contrast we give in response to how God has given to us for this reason. And this, this idea that I, is the last thing I want to share with you. So often I do find this, if I'm going to give a word of counsel here. Too often do I find when there's a need or there's a circumstance, a lot of times there's a little bit of hesitancy where people will say, let's see how everybody else does. And if there's still a gap at the end, then maybe I'll step in. When you were in kindergarten... Is that how you did the line leader thing? When can I be first in line? It's longing to be first in line. And that's a reflection of our Savior. Because, you know, I love the passage in Hebrews where he said, where it said about Jesus, who for the joy set before him, 
endured the cross, scorning its shame, because he knew that he was a subset of one. Not only was he first in line, he was the only one in line. But he did that for you, to show you your inestimable worth and the value of what he has won on your behalf and that which he continues to give to us every day out of the abundance and generosity of our Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, now and forever. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.